Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Charlie Cook, editor and publisher of the Cook Political Report. Described by the New York Times as a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative, Bob Schaefer called it the Bible of the political community. Charlie gave a lot of wisdom in this podcast, and we've broken it up into two episodes, with the first outlining Charlie's career advice as we get a more detailed understanding of how networking and connections in D.C., as well as a focus on political commentary early in his career, made him the foremost expert in the field. In the second episode, Charlie dives deeper into his detailed thoughts regarding the Democratic nominees Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Michael Bloomberg, as well as the Republican strategy to get Donald Trump re-elected in 2020. We're also seeing, at least in the United States, uh, ideological sorting, where when I was growing up, there used to be a lot of conservative, moderate Democrats and liberal, moderate Republicans. And the conservative, moderate Democrats were people that kept the Democratic Party from going off into a ditch on the left and the liberal, moderate Republicans from going off into a ditch on the right. Then, over time, for a variety of reasons involving media and primaries and a lot of reasons, the conservatives, moderates in the Democratic Party, most of them either died Mm. or left the Democratic Party. And most of the liberal, moderate Republicans either died or they left the Republican Party. So the Democratic and Republican parties that used to have a fairly substantial overlap ideologically, the Democratic Party became basically a liberal party. Mm-hmm. I mean, some more liberal than others. And the Republican Party became a conservative party. Again, some more conservative than others. And then you filter in the media, you know, talk radio and Rush Limbaugh and a lot of really conservative. For some reason in the United States, conservative talk radio has worked a hundred thousand, a thousand times more than liberal talk radio. For some, I can, I'm not sure why. But that created a... a um, 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 information channel and pulling together a lot of conservatives. And then cable television with Fox News on the right, MSNBC to a certain extent, CNN on the left, mm-hmm. and websites, left, right, social media. So we create these ideological silos yes. on the left and the right that build an intensity that is far, far greater than we used to see. And to the point now where you know, when it gets close to Thanksgiving every fall, you, you see references to polls of X percent of Americans are not looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner with their, you know, families and cousins and aunts and all, you know, uh, because it, it may break out into a political fight, mm-hmm. political argument. Or uh, there are polls that show that a decent number of both Democrats and Republicans uh, would not want their son or daughter to marry somebody from the other party. And it's like, wow, wow. Uh, that's really, really quite something. And that creates disruption in the political process. And I'm told um, this week, um, with a lot of the unrest here in Hong Kong, right. that there are families that are getting pulled apart. Yeah. And which... You know, I don't know any. You know, I don't know much yeah. about what's going on here. But the thing about it is, I, I understand that. Yes. 
And so it, it really is, I mean, I, when I was right out of college in the 70s, and I would hear people talk about global politics mm-hmm. and, I, and global trends. Right. And I would think, what a crock. There's no such thing as global trends. I mean, what goes on in one country is, has nothing to do with what goes And as I've gotten older, I've started appreciating, first A, appreciating that there are some trends and there are patterns and things that are happening, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And there is a lot of uh, interconnectedness and there is a rise of populism. So A, I began to realize, but B, it's a lot more happening than ever before Mm -hmm. so that Donald Trump's election and Brexit, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you told me that there was some linkage between something 40 years ago in a British election and in a U.S. election, I would have laughed. But even then, you know, you could think, well, Maggie Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. So even then, there was probably more, there was some, but... You know, and, and, and that, 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 that changes in, in the in economy and technology, all these things, uh, it may affect other countries in different ways, but there are some common threads and common reactions. Mm. So, interesting, you know. I, I'd like to sort of stay on that path in yeah. terms of a, sort of you were comparing wow. Brexit to the US, upcoming U.S. election and, uh, you know, Chairman Corbyn, obviously, losing to Boris, and uh, there's some similarities there with, uh, I guess, the potential Democratic uh, nominees. Um, actually, first, before we get into that, you know, of the ones that are out there, could you give us, you know, out of 100, uh, the potential ones that are coming up, could you give us a score? Uh, 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 Biden, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, or Bloomberg? In other words, chances of winning? Exactly. Yeah, 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 sure. And, and, and... Um, Sure, and, 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 and just before, well, just to put one sentence on your previous paragraph, um, um, I think it's important to watch what's going on and to figure out what, where, where might there be connections and things, but also, uh, hey, look, there are differences, and you've got to appreciate the differences, so you can't just directly extrapolate. Okay, um, one thing, uh, President Trump is, um, you know, our politics is getting more polarized all the time, and it was getting polarized, increasingly polarized before he came along. Uh, You could make an argument that he was the result of a lot of polarization. Uh, You could also say that he has caused even more. So, you know, there's an interconnection there. President Trump evokes much stronger uh, emotions than any other president that we've ever had. And it's not to say that Barack Obama didn't love hate. Mm-hmm. It's not to say Bill Clinton didn't, you know, I mean, but, but as we get more polarized and as American politics becomes more raw, uh, um, the intensity, the velocity, the, 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 the sheer meanness going both directions is getting, getting much worse. So, President Trump did not get the honeymoon that a lot of new presidents get. That normally, you know, you get elected, no matter what the circumstances were, there are people that may not have voted for you, but they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt initially. And then you, uh, 
uh, and then you either do well and please them, or you do something not well, and they don't like it. They don't like it, and you know things. Your 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 numbers go up and down, but you start off generally at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And over the next three years, usually for most presidents, there's a twenty. 20 to 25 point gap between the highest job approval rating they've gotten, they've had, and the lowest job approval rating. I mean, uh, and and but for President Trump, um, when he took office, his job approval rating was far, 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 far lower than any other previous president in the history of polling. In other words, post World War II, right. and his negatives were far, 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 far higher starting out from the from day one and um president trump and i'm being as nonpartisan and objective as i could possibly be president trump um um he is the first president we've ever had who has never had a 50 percent job approval rating in the gallup poll right. or any other major poll 50 percent no i mean everybody else started off over 50 right had over 50 or started off that way um there have been, as of uh, today, uh, Thursday, uh, or as of the time I came over to the Asian right. Society, uh, 391 major national polls that have met, measured, tested his job approval rating. And by major, I'm talking Gallup, ABC, Washington Post, CBS News, CBS, uh, you know, CBS right. News, CNN, Fox, uh, and then some, uh, Pew Research, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, um, and then some of the higher quality, you know, Quinnipiac, right. Marist, Monmouth, that sort of thing. So 391. And 390 out of 391, his numbers were, as pollsters say, upside down or mm-hmm. underwater. In other words, a higher disapproval right. than approval. No other president remotely, remotely like that. So President Trump's trading range, if you will, not 20 to 25 points between the high and the low, it's been in the Gallup poll, 11 points. 46, the highest job approval rating he's ever had in the Gallup poll, 35 the lowest. Fox News poll, 10 points. Mm. 48 was the highest, uh, uh, 38 was the lowest. In ABC Washington Post, uh, NBC Wall Street Journal, it was like eight nine. Now, I mentioned the three ninety one. In three hundred ninety out of three hundred ninety one, the one poll, major national poll, where his approval was higher than his disapproval was the very first Fox News poll. And I'm not knocking the Fox News poll is actually a very high quality poll. Right. First one was in February. It's like three weeks into his presidency. And he had a 48% approved, 47% disapproved. Okay? And then every subsequent, there have been roughly three dozen Fox polls since then, had been underwater, and all the others have been underwater. So you, you get that. So, uh, very, and, and, and there's an intensity there for every one person that strongly approves the job President Trump's doing, there's on average one and a half people that strongly disapprove. So there's a real intensity. Now, within the Democratic Party, I think thought in the 70s, I thought Democrats really hated President Nixon, and they did. There were a lot of Democrats that hated President Reagan. There were a lot of people, Americans that loved President Reagan and liked him, but there were a lot of Democrats that hated him. 
George W. Bush, particularly right after the Florida, the, the, right after the election, Bush, the contested Bush Gore, and then it went down, and then it, uh, or it got better, but particularly after the Iraq War mm. in like 2006, 7, 8, um, it was a whole new level of hatred that we had never seen yeah. before, uh, at least, you know, modern times. But for President Trump, far, 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 far more than that. And I, I should add that, that Republicans hated Bill Clinton. Right. Oh, God, they did. Yeah. And Obama, even more than that. Right. So anyway, you get the general idea. For Democrats, for a lot of Democrats, as far as they are concerned, and I'm exaggerating slightly, okay. but the most horrific thing that could happen on this planet this year would be a giant asteroid hits planet Earth and kills everyone on it, everyone and everything on it. Okay. But for a lot of Democrats, a very close second would be President Trump gets reelected. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's just not, not all of them, but not all Democrats, certainly not. But it's an intensity we've ever seen before. And as a result, something that's never been important before, electability, mm. is suddenly really, really important. Right. And to about roughly 60, 65, between 55 and 65, but generally on the higher end of that range, think it's more important to nominate someone that would beat President Trump than someone that just simply reflects their positions on issues, their policy views or personal values or whatever. And this has never happened before. Now, not all Democrats, and I would say there's about 35% of Democrats that would not believe that. Right. You know, they want somebody that agrees with. Yeah. And they typically are, are on the more liberal side, more progressive side. Uh, more likely to be Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren type supporters. Right. So, with all that as a, as a, as a lead-in, um, is that um, I think that there, um, I'm trying to sh figure out a way to shorten this for the sake of the podcast, but there, there is a very strong constituency for a very strong progressive like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. As I said, I think it's around 35 40%. But I think there are a lot of Democrats that are not in that 40% that are very worried about whether Bernie or Elizabeth could, could or would beat, let's go with would, beat President Trump. And there are, um, and, and this whole electability thing, it can manifest itself in a lot of ways. And one of them is ideological. And uh, where the traditional view of electability has always been, well, you know, anybody that could reach into the middle mm. and grab disproportionately independent voters. Right. You know, independents, soft Republicans, soft Democrats, or if you look at ideologically, moderate, middle-of-the-road voters, mm -hmm. voters that are a little bit liberal, a little bit conservative, or maybe they're just not ideological at all, but can reach in the middle. That's the conventional. And that if you get someone that's just out of the base that could get a really strong base vote, they generally can't get people out of the middle. Now, that's the conventional view, and I think there's a certain amount of truth in it. Now, there are some other people who say, wait a minute, though, if you can't get a strong vote out of your base, mm -hmm. How can you win enough in the middle 
if your own people aren't coming out, you know, the people that would vote your, for your party by a nine to one ratio, if they don't turn out in big numbers and if they don't come out nine to one, you know, they're not enthusiastic about you, then how do you win? And there's some uh, a degree of truth there. Now, I happen to think that in life, it's really good to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and to strike a balance. You know, you ought to try to get someone that could get a good vote out of the base, but someone that could get a pretty strong vote out of the middle. Right. And you try to strike, strike a balance. Mm -hmm. And for a party, I think, as a very pragmatic person, non-ideological person, I think that works really, really, really well. So the ideological is one element. But there are other aspects of it. Age. Um, and given the importance of beating President Trump, there are some people that will look at Joe Biden and they'll say, oh, I, I should say that the, the ideological electability typically works to benefit a, a, a Joe Biden right. or other sort of center left, left of center, but not far left of center candidates. But there are other people that look at that electability is important, but they don't look at it so much. Or one another way to look at it is age. Mm -hmm. Well, Joe Biden's 77 years old. Yes. Maybe that's too old to win. Mm -hmm. Or maybe, uh, you know, or Pete Buttigieg just turned 38 years old. Maybe that's too young mm -hmm. to win. And maybe it's not that they can't win, but would they have as good of a chance? Right. Or is it worth, you know, maybe you would really like a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, but given the importance of electability, is that a risk you want to take? Or maybe you'd really like to vote for Joe Biden, but is voting, going with a 77-year-old and someone who may not be quite as fast as they used to be and might be not as good a candidate as they were 10, 20 years ago, uh, that might be a reason not to, uh, you know, not to want to take a risk on Joe Biden or someone as young as Pete Buttigieg, mm -hmm. for example. And, and um, with Buttigieg, who, and I will say, I've watched all these candidates out in Iowa, New Hampshire. Yes. It's a lot of fun. And, and... Um, he's he's extremely impressive guy, right. and I think on the ideological electability, very much there. I mean, ideologically, I think he's a very very good place. Yes. But but you know, he's the first openly gay candidate we've ever had as a major candidate for a major national party. Now, are there some people that are not going to vote for a gay candidate? Yeah, yeah, of course there's some. I think most of them are Democrats, but uh, and, and and a lot of them um, probably haven't voted Democrat in a long time. Right. But most of them, are. but there is a slice of African Americans of, of not a majority, not half, but a slice of, for religious or cultural reasons. Uh, they're not they're not terribly sympathetic with with the gay community. So the thing about it is, I know Democrats who there are people that are Democrats, people that are gay. People are gay Democrats who like Pete Buttigieg a lot and who agree with him and who think he'd be a great president, but they're not sure he could win. Right. Is it worth the risk of electing President Trump? So there, there's another aspect. Mm -hmm. Or it could work, it, uh, another, there's another group of people that it could be gender. Mm -hmm. It could be, um, you could be a woman. You could be a woman who voted for Hillary Clinton. You could be a woman who thinks that a, a, a woman would, could be just as good or a better president than a man. And someone who desperately wants their, uh, to, uh, 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 the U.S. to elect a woman president. But if you really, really, really hate President Trump and you really, really want to build him, is it worth the risk of some people, some people, 
who might not vote for a woman? Yeah. Is it worth the risk? Or you know, maybe we'll wait four years. And so the thing is, this manifests itself, and, and I think it was kind of true, um, and, and so it's not, I think it was kind of true with the, uh, the two major African-American candidates, Cory Booker and, and Kamala Harris, uh, and uh, Latino, Julian Castro, where clearly America will elect an uh, African-American president. They elected Obama twice. Yeah. Um, but Obama, President, uh, Barack Obama had, his opponents were John McCain and Mitt Romney. Yes. And um, in August of 2008, uh, John McCain had a town meeting, and you could find this on C-SPAN, uh, .org and other places where a woman stands up and says, you know, during the Q&A period, I don't, something to the effect of, I don't trust Barack Obama. He's an Arab. Right. And John McCain, to his enormous credit, said, interrupted her and said something to the fact of, ma'am, I'm sorry, there are a lot of things that I don't agree with Barack Obama on, but I will tell you something about, he was a de he's a decent family man, he is an American. And, 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 and if you're a Democratic, if you're, a Demo if, you, if you're someone that's a Democrat and you desperately want to beat President Trump and you're thinking, you know what, I'm not sure President Trump would play by the same rules and the same behavior that John McCain would or Mitt Romney would. Mm -hmm. and, and so the thing about it is, it's all, and, and, and all these are things, and it works you know, against uh, an older white guy like <laughs> Joe Biden or, or, or Mike Bloomberg or, 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 or um, um, Bernie Sanders or a young person like 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 Pete Buttigieg. I mean, the thing is, this it's all every candidate's got stuff going against them. Okay, so okay, let's put this together. And 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 I've written this a lot. And people can go on cookpolitical.com and and read a lot of this. Uh, but that I think that the first four events, the events that are in February, Iowa, New Hampshire. I went on February third, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. We have had four different candidates that have been in first place at some point in Iowa in the last four months. Hmm. You know, Joe Biden, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, right. four different, and four in New Hampshire. And if you look at the polling, look at realclearpolitics.com, does a really good averages of you know, national Democratic nomination, Iowa, Nevada, you know, key states, all this stuff. It's, it's really helpful if you go in the polls thing and then just kind of play around there. But um, if you, I've lost my train of thought, talking about age, um, uh, that, um, so, oh, if the gap between the number one and the number four in Iowa, New Hampshire, it's not very big. Right. Same thing in New Hampshire. And Democrats, unlike Republicans, all the Democratic primaries are, 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 called propor are proportional. Yeah. Where you win, Republicans can have win or take all. Yeah. You win a congressional delegate, you win all the delegates from that congressional district, and they're usually three to nine, mm -hmm. something like that, uh, 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 delegates per, per congressional district. Or you win the state, you get all the at large ones. Right. And for anybody that's like really into this stuff, David Plouffe, P L O U F F E, uh, who was Obama's campaign manager, mm. he has a weekly podcast. Right. Sorry to. Yeah. Uh, 
to promote a, a competing webcast. Uh, it's called Campaign HQ. Campaign HQ, right. Yeah, and it's, I think it's weekly. And over the last months, few months, he's interviewed most of the campaign managers, top strategists, oh. and people. You know, it's, it's really good. It's about an hour long. Um, really, really, really good. But back in October, he did one called Delegates, Delegates, Delegates. And he did a 65-minute long interview with Jeff Berman, who was the guy for Obama in 2008 who designed and executed Obama's strategy of winning delegates and beating Hillary Clinton. And then in 2016, he ran Hillary Clinton's against Bernie. He ran Hillary Clinton's delegate thing. Right. So this guy is like one biggest expert, probably the biggest expert. And he also has a book out that goes into the Obama campaign and how they did it. But anyway, uh, 65 minutes on this one podcast, October, called Delegates, 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 that will tell you more than you will ever want to know. You will be an expert. You will be a semi-expert if you listen to that for 65 minutes. Really, really, really good. But anyway, the point is, you, it's very hard to build a lead right. with the proportional because particularly when there are a bunch of candidates running, um, it's very hard to build one. But once you've got a lead, any kind of much of a lead at all, it's very, very, very hard for someone below you to overtake you. Okay. And because of the way, the, way, the, way, the way it works. There is a really, uh, now why do candidates in both parties focus on Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina? For Democrats, they're just under 5,000 delegates. Only about 4% of the pledged delegates come from those four states. Yeah. So it's infinitesimal. But the reason they've done it, and they've been doing it for, you know, since basically 72 for, for um, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, South Carolina are a little, little newer to the game, uh, but they've been carved out to go first, uh, these four. But the reason candidates have always done this is that they wanted to, these four smaller states where you can campaign person to person. You mm -hmm. could go from little town to little town. You can walk in parades. You can do town meetings. You can actually meet people. They can ask you questions. and But you try to do as well as you can there. And on Iowa caucus night, you know, every political reporter on the planet is going to be in Des Moines or near right. in Iowa. And almost that in New Hampshire. Uh, and, and whoever does really, really well there their name recognition right. goes sky high, they get momentum, and as a result of that, they can raise money, hopefully a lot of money, to compete in the other 46 states, and the Democrats abroad, uh, uh, for the other 96% of delegates. So, but it's all to get better known and raise money. Um, and that, that, that's why, and, they, and, and the truth is, Iowa, since 1972, every single Democratic nominee for president came in first, second, or third in Iowa. First, second, or third. Then they also came in either first or second in New Hampshire. Mm. So that Iowa and New Hampshire didn't necessarily pick the nominee, but they narrow the field. They right. winnow it down. Mm -hmm. And then it goes on to three, two, or generally two coming out of New Hampshire right. and a fight to the finish. Or there may be some stragglers along the way, kind of zombies where they're, they're, they're dead, but they're yeah, still they're vertical still and moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
Anyway, that's why. And for the last four Democratic nominees in a row, whoever won Iowa also won the nomination. Mm, now, but all group, the way this could be, and it's tightly grouped up as it is, and with proportional representation, there is a really good chance that um, you could have two, three, theoretically, four different candidates come in first in the first four states. Now, it probably wouldn't be four, but that could happen. Or you could come in first in two of them and not in two, but where you've won by such narrow margins mm -hmm. that given the multi-can, that you have virtually no delegate lead. Right. You, in fact, you could all, you, you have four people coming out with all roughly the same number of delegates, mm -hmm. you know, more or less, out of the first four states. So the thing is, then you have Super Tuesday, March 3rd. Right. That's the first of the 46 other states. And on Super Tuesday, you have 14 states, and 14 states that have uh, small, inconsequential states. States like California, right. and <laughs> Texas, and North Carolina, and Virginia, and Tennessee, I mean, Massachusetts, yeah. big states from coast to coast. And a lot of them are really expensive places. Yeah. And it is estimated that to do an adequate job of advertising, organization, a minimum to do a real job would be $100 million. Mm. Now the thing about it is none of these Democrats have begun to spend anywhere, or begun to raise anywhere near $100 million. And for most of them, they're spending money about as fast as coming in. Right. Now, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Buttigieg, they've raised the most so far. Biden, who's never been a particularly good fundraiser, is actually only fourth mm. uh, so far in cumulative fundraising. And we'll get the final uh, numbers uh, for December 31st. They'll come at the end of January. But now we're going with numbers that are you know, what they claim. But they generally don't want to lie too much because right. if they lie to reporters, then reporters take it personally. So anyway. Um, so you could just have a muddled mess coming out of, of, of the first four states. Now, I think that while Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, um, I wouldn't say their support is entirely interchangeable, but I think most of the people that are for Bernie will end up, you know, if, if the nominee, right. or if it narrows down, They'd go to they'd go to Warren Either Warren people go to Sanders right. yeah, yeah that they would whoever would win and they wouldn't win everybody but they'd pick up some other people but pretty much so but that electability thing does hold them back right. and I think it creates about a forty percent thirty five forty percent ceiling on how good they could do how high they could go okay. so if I had to bet today I would say there is a fifty percent chance that the Democratic nomination is going to go to Joe Biden. Now, Biden has assets. He's well-liked in the party. He's got more experience than anybody else. Goodwill from Obama. Obviously, incredibly high name recognition, all that. Uh, but he is, he is old. Uh, he is widely seen as not as effective, not as effective candidate as he would have been 10, 20 years ago. Um, and he does have a tendency to make mistakes on the campaign trail some. So he's got, you know, there, there's some, there's some, you know, but right now, clearly, you do a poll of Democrats nationwide, he is seen as the most electable candidate. Right. And as long as he is the most, and, and while he's got other fine qualities, 
as long as he is the most electable candidate, I think is seen as, is perceived as the most electable candidate, I think he will be the front runner, for, he, he will win the Democratic nomination. But if at any point he says or does something or something happens that he is no longer perceived as the most electable or particularly electable, boom. I think it's like a trap door. Down he goes. So it's, it's the, the, they're the legs of the stool, the chair that's holding him up is electability. And so it, he's a front runner, but it's a fragile front runner. Based on that. Yeah. Right, right, right. But that leaves another 50%. Now, if you think that Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina are going to be a jumbled mess with nobody having a whole lot of money, uh, Bernie is more likely to have money, more money than anybody mm -hmm. else because his fundraising is doing better than anybody else's. But nobody's, nobody's going to have a lot of money. Nobody's going to have a big delegate lead. Nobody's going to have a huge amount of momentum. And if it's Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, the electability thing, then if that happens, uh, having the amount of money to effectively fight in these 14 states is a real, real liability. Yeah. Now, is there a burning desire among Democrats to elect a Wall Street billionaire, a billionaire, <laughs> any billionaire, but particularly a billionaire that made it on Wall Street? Yes. No, no. In fact, there's a pretty strong prejudice against anybody that comes out of the business world in the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is more liberal than it yeah. used to be. Uh, so there is a, a strong disinclination to go with a Mike Bloomberg. Um, no question about it. But if Biden were to stumble, mm -hmm. I would watch Bloomberg because he's worth between 55 and $60 billion U.S. Right. dollars. He has said he'll spend at least $1 billion, and he's already spent a quarter of that, and we're nowhere near Super Tuesday, March 3rd. Even started, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think if he, once he gets to a billion, first of all, I think he's going to go well over a billion. Oh, yeah. But secondly, if he's making progress, if he's doing reasonably well, would $2 billion stop him? Would two and a half stop him? No, I don't think so. Now, so far, as of Thursday, February, uh, January 23rd, as of a day or two ago, he had already aired $248 million worth of television, almost all of it in the March states, most of that in the Super Tuesday states, and it is saturation level advertising. And let me give you an example. In Washington, we live in the Washington DC area. Virginia is one of the Super Tuesday states. If I were to watch the evening broadcast news, local news for 30 minutes, and then watch the network broadcast news, either ABC, CBS, or NBC, over that hour, I would see at least three Michael Bloomberg ads. And no matter what you're watching, when you're watching, broadcast and major cable, if you're in one of those states, you are seeing a ton of Bloomberg ads. If you were watching nationally, if you were watching the NCAA college championship football game, there were only two advert presidential advertisers. 
One was President Trump, the other was Mike Bloomberg. Wow. And I think those ads are like, I think they were like 10, 11 million dollars for yeah. one 30 second so ad. 30 one, one, once. So anyway, um, Bloomberg has a th over a thousand staffers on board in 30 states. Right now. Right now. It, I'm sure it's over that now, but that's the last number mm -hmm. I heard. Most, not all, but most of these staffers, particularly the field staffers, have contracts that go through the election. Mm. And a lot of field offices have leases through the election. Right. He is committed, he has said, these people, most of these people are going to be working whether I win the nomination or not. Right all the way through the general election. And while Michael Bloomberg is a left of center, but he's certainly not a Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders type right. Democrat, progressive, hard progressive Democrat. But, and, and, and one of the motivations for him being in this race is he desperately, desperately, desperately does not want President Trump to get reelected, mm -hmm. number one. Number two, he has real, real, real reservations about whether Sanders or Warren could right. beat Trump. And number three, and he would not say this, I don't think, publicly, certainly not now, but even if Bernie or Elizabeth Warren won, um, he didn't think that's necessarily where the Democratic Party or the country ought to be going. Okay, but that's so he has said he will these people are gonna be, most of these people are gonna be on the ground through the election which again addresses the, gosh, I don't want a Wall Street billionaire, but wow, that's, he's spending a lot of money yeah. and he's gonna be there no matter what. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. And if, if Biden stumbles, and there, there's a fair chance of, Biden, of, President, of, of Vice President Biden stumbling, because he does, you know. Yeah, he can stumble. Maybe. Yeah. I, I think that Bloomberg, with his spending, I think, uh, I would put it, put it this way, I think there's a 25%, I think there's a 50% chance that the nominee will be, that Joe Biden will win the nomination. I think there's a 25% chance. Wow. That, and, and I will tell you, no other political reporter I know of, no other political analyst I know of would, would give Bloomberg a 25% chance. I don't think, I think most of them would probably get it less than five or 10, yeah. but I think there's a pretty decent chance. And then there's a 25% chance that who the heck knows? Yeah. There'll be somebody Senior other than those two and, you know, yeah, or Buddha uh, Judge or, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar or somebody, you know, the nobody has a majority and the mm -hmm. convention goes to some, you know, I mean, what, what, whatever. But the new CNN poll that came out this week, for example, and if you look, if you look at a national poll right now, no, I mean Bloomberg, you do a national Democrat trial heat. Oh, he's only like five or six points. Yeah. Um, but a, he's not running nationally right now. He's running in super two state states, mm -hmm. and that's where his focus is. But secondly, what I think they're trying to do is get to the point where they he is perceived as as electable mm -hmm. as Biden or anybody else and against electable and would have as good or a better chance of beating President Trump as Biden or anybody else. Now, this new CNN poll that came out this week, and you know when you go on CNN uh, or any of these polls, most of these major national polls, 
You go on the story, so if it's CNN or if it's ABC Washington Post or you know Fox News or whatever, usually there's a link, or after the first day, there's a link that takes, a, takes you to the questionnaire mm -hmm. that gives you every single question right. and the results for those, and in some cases, some of the cross tabs, you know, breaking out by you know, age, race, you know, other things. Um, that in the, in the new CNN poll, um, Joe Biden is ahead of President Trump by nine percentage points. Off the top of my head, it's 5230, uh, 50, it's, it's uh, 5243, nine points. Michael Bloomberg is ahead of President Trump by nine percentage points. And it's like one digit off. Huh. I think, I think it's, instead of 52, it t instead of 52, 50, uh, instead of 52.43, I think it's 51.44, or 51.40, you know, anyway, it's, it's nine, exactly nine points. Yeah. And all the other Democrats, it's lower than nine. Right. And now this is the first poll that's shown this, but I think as we start watching, they try, if you start seeing that, it will help build the case mm -hmm. that he is as or more electable as any others. But even then, Biden still needs to stumble right. for, 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 for Bloomberg to, to, to shoot the gap. And the, the other thing is, and nobody's really talking about this right now, and, and, and it's for normal voters, this will never be a consideration. But um, if Bl Bloomberg does not take a dime from anybody, and there would not be to be any super PACs or anything yeah. like that. So um, the Democratic Party, let's just make up a number. They'd be spending a billion to $2 billion for a presidential campaign. With Bloomberg, they don't have to. Yeah. It's not, because he's going to do whatever it takes. If, if Democrats win the presidency, if, and if um, they hold on to the House representatives, which I think they probably will, not certain, but probably will, if Republicans still have a majority in the Senate, even if it's a narrow majority, there is a very limited amount to what a Democratic president can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can do some things on executive order, yeah. you can do some things, but it's very, very, very limited. Yes. And with someone as smart, crafty as Mitch McConnell as the Senate majority leader, um, it's real hard to get yeah. stuff done because he's real. I mean, you can like him, you can dislike him, but he's really, really, really smart and, and good at what knows his stuff really yeah. well. So, um, hypothetically, if you had somebody that was worth fifty-five to sixty billion dollars and going to drop one, two, two and a half billion dollars, and so the Democratic Party doesn't have to raise and spend that that frees up that money to go for the U.S. Senate. Mm. And you could see far more money going in to Democratic campaigns mm -hmm. and on their behalf than you would see otherwise. And I would venture the, a guess that you would see more money spent for Democrats than for Republicans in the U.S. Senate. And Republicans be raised spending an enormous amount of money anyway. Yeah. So, uh, 
for superdelegates and for sort of the, the, the partisan Democrats and they start thinking that the second, third level, well, that's kind of interesting. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm, look, I'm not, first of all, I'm a registered independent. Right. And so I can't, I live in Maryland, yeah. I can't vote in any primary. <laughs> I'm not supporting anybody, not endorsing. I've been an independent since I saw the newsletter in 1984. Uh, but I think that the conventional wisdom and most of the experts, I believe they are underestimating uh, Bloomberg's potential. Yeah. And I think the main reason they're underestimating it is nobody has ever skipped Iowa, right. New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Now, and actually I didn't say this in the lecture today or the talk at lunch, I wish I had. I think if you did a search of the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, the Koran, hmm. the Torah, the Magna Carta, the U.S. Code, of you know, all the federal laws, Nowhere does it say you have to compete in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Right, yeah. And if you're writing checks and you don't have to build up your name recognition in order to raise money, in order to compete in the other 46 states with the other 96, uh, 96% of the delegates, then, and you're getting late anyway, then we don't know, nobody, I mean, nobody, any, everybody that's ever tried to skip the first four states, like for example, Rudy Giuliani, they weren't able to, but they needed to raise money. They didn't have the money. They didn't. So, so the thing is, I, I think that a lot of people are really thinking conventionally and that this is an experiment. Yeah. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but we've never had anybody worth $55 billion running for president before. So maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Yeah. And again, I am the outlier, no yeah. question about it. But um, I, you know, I, I think, but, and there's a 25% chance that who the hell knows yeah. who's gonna be the Democrat nominee. Now, let me just kind of, cause I know we're way over time, um, uh, sum it up. Um, I think President Trump is extremely vulnerable. It, this is going to be a very close, this is going to be a close race. I do not know who's going to win. Close races can go either way. And we saw in 2016 yes. a really close race and one that Hillary Clinton had won the popular vote by 2.1 percentage points, 2.9 million votes. It was that Trump was able to win 270 electoral votes with Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So um, I, I um, um, uh, this thing's going to be awfully close. Now, I, the conventional wisdom is that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren either cannot beat President Trump mm -hmm. or would have a really, really, really difficult time beating President Trump. I'm going to be small c conservative. I'll just say I think either one of them would have a difficult time right. beating President Trump. Kind of ratcheting it down a good bit. But if this election is a referendum up or down on President Trump, do you like him? Do you not? Do you want to see him president for another four years? How do you think he's done the last four years? If it is a referendum up or down on President Trump, I think that's a very, very, very difficult election for President Trump to win. But if it's a choice, and if it's a choice between Donald Trump and someone who, for whatever reason, ideological or whatever, 
is as polarized, is very polarizing, very controversial, then that is more likely to be a choice election, mm -hmm. or fairly likely to be a choice rather than a referendum. And if there is nothing that President Trump and his campaign would want more than this to be a choice election between President Trump and democratic socialism. <laughs> President Trump and what they would say is far out, loony, crazy, liberal, and this is what right. Trump people would say. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going that far, but, but I, I would say if you're Trump, President Trump and his campaign, that, that, that is what you would want. That's the strategy. Um, I think just about any other Democrat that is not polarizing, not as controversial, um, would be more likely to be able to keep it at a referendum and that Democrats probably win a referendum. Okay. They would be more likely to keep it, or better able to keep it a referendum rather than a choice, or a choice with something that would be as attractive or as unattractive as President Trump. So, I because I don't think Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders are going to win the Democrat nomination, and I would put their chances at, I would only put it like 10 or 15%. Really? Yeah. But because of that, um, and be, I, I think that the Democratic nominee is more likely to be someone less polarizing, controversial. I think it's likely to be someone that would be more likely to make it a referendum that rather than a choice. And I think the, the, that would be a race that would be particularly difficult for President Trump to win. So for that reason, the conventional wisdom that I find, I travel around the world and to a certain extent around the United States and particularly in the investment world and whether it's Wall mm -hmm. Street or wherever right. around the world, uh, there, the, the, the conventional wisdom is absolutely that there is minimum of 60, 65% chance that President Trump wins. And I've seen numbers, uh, I've heard of numbers of surveys that investment firms have done of their clients of money managers and stuff. 80%, 80, right. I think somebody told me one of 85%, I, you know, 80, but let's just say 75 or 80. Um, I think that's really, re I mean, they're really, really smart. Yeah. And boy, I'm sure they know everything in the world about finance and the economy and all kinds of things that I know very little about. But I think they're way, way, way off base here. So net, net, I, I think President Trump has, I think his chances of winning re-election is, let's just say under 50-50. Under 50-50. But, you know, if you told me, if you told me who the Democratic nominee is, I would give you different odds okay. that might be higher or lower, depending upon who it is. Mm. But I think, um, and, and, and again, I should emphasize this is absolutely not a, a conventional view. Yeah. But, you know, it's what I've got and, you know, I'm either right or I'm wrong or, you know, or whatever. But it's what I think. Well, it's different times and uh, sort of uh, these are different uh, elections and yeah, we never know. Yeah, it, it's, it's um, yeah, uh, it, 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 you know, 2016 was such an odd election and, and I just, just want to throw two more thoughts out real quick because mm -hmm. I know we're way over. But um, I have people that will ask, that will say, well, the polls were all wrong. Why should we listen to the polls? Right. 
And the thing is, if somebody had said that to me, well, let's, let's say five years ago, before the 2016 election, if somebody said, should we trust polls? What I would say is there is a crisis in the polling profession mm. and that polls, at least in the United States, and I suspect elsewhere, that at least in the United States, polling, you, you have to be a lot more careful. It's, it's a lot harder and a whole lot more expensive. And a lot of people assume, well, that's because so many people have cell phones instead of landlines and pollsters don't call. Well, the fact is, I mean, lousy pollsters don't call cell phones. Good pollsters do. Mm -hmm. In fact, 50 to 70 percent of their samples are to people in the United States on cell phones, of the quality poll, number one. So it's it's not about cell phones. Um, But when I was in polling a long time ago, a pollster could make one. Um, they could make 100 calls and get 25 completed interviews. Right. You know, and the short ones are three, four, five minutes, seven minutes, and the long ones are 20, 25. When you get up higher than 25, it's a little problematic. But 25 for every 100 calls. Today, you make 100 calls. You might get only six completed okay. interviews. And that, and these are live person interviews, that's really, really, really expensive. That's horrifically yeah. expensive. And that it makes it, puts it out of, out of range for a lot of news organizations, a lot of entities, so it means that they either don't do it or they go to online. Online, I don't think online polling has been perfected. No. At least in the United States, I don't think it's been perfected. Um, I think there are ways to do it that are not bad that, that may be okay, but even to do it that way is extremely hard, mm-hmm. and very few of the online polls are doing it like that. They're mm-hmm. doing it more dime store stuff, more cut rate stuff. So I, um, um, so there were, because of caller ID, and this is all because of caller ID mm-hmm. and voicemail, that a lot of people, if their phone's ringing and they look at it and if they don't recognize who it is because of telemarketers, they're not going to pick up the phone. And my wife is absolutely like that. (laughs) But there are other people who will. I will. And the reason I will is, among other things, if we have three kids that are in their 20s and 30s, um, if one of them is in a car wreck Mm. and bleeding on the side of a road and a good Samaritan is calling saying, uh, Mr. Cook, you're, you've got a daughter who's bleeding in, in there. You know, I, w- I want to hear that. Or if the police department, you know, so whatever. Right. And I've had a lot of times where it's been a call that just had some random number and some turned out to be a call I needed. So anyway, um, but what that means, it's made it really, really, really hard to get good, to, to expensive. Now, the good news for polling is that at least so far, the people who are like my wife and will not answer it and will just let it go to voicemail, they are more, not more likely to be more Democratic than Republican or more Republican than Democrat. They're not more likely to be liberal or conservative. Oh, right. They're just people that don't want to do that versus people. So it, 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 there hasn't been a partisan ideological yeah. difference enough to make a huge difference. Um, now. 2016, that's when people will say, wow, the polls were all wrong. The polls said Hillary Clinton was going to win, and obviously Donald Trump won. 
Well, the thing is, when people say that, it's like, okay, what polls are you talking about? Well, the national polls. Well, what do national polls measure? The national popular vote. That's all. They, no national poll has ever tried to break it out by state right. because you can't do that. And what did the national polls show? If you went on place I was telling you about earlier, realclearpolitics.com, on the morning of the election, Hillary Clinton had a three-point lead in the major national polls. National. And like the big-time networks were generally two, three, four. Three-point lead. When all the votes are counted, she won the national popular vote by 2.1 percentage points, 2.9 million votes. Now, the polls, national polls were off by nine-tenths of a point. The fact is, not, that's nine-tenths of a point isn't bad. Yeah. And that's more accurate than they actually had been in 2012 when the national polls were showing Obama-Romney race to be much closer than the three-point Obama win. Mm -hmm. So the national polls were off a little, and when they went back and looked, they found that there was a tiny, you know, President Trump, Donald Trump's best, best, best groups, I mean, after like Republicans and conservatives, mm -hmm. best groups, people that live in small town rural America, number one. Another one, or a, a, another group is whites with less than a four-year college degree. The third group is white, either evangelical conservatives or white Catholics, and particularly those that go to church at least once a week. Those are the three. Now, there are lots of other people. They're non-white. They're, uh, they're, you know, would you, could you find an Asian PhD who lives in yeah. a, a million miles from nowhere who, I mean, or, or who, who lives in the middle of Manhattan that votes for Trump? Of course you yeah. can, but that's his court. What they found after the election was to the extent that there was an undersampling. Right. It was whites and it was people with less, whites with less than a four-year college degree. Mm -hmm. and, and where that was an election where small town rural came out at a disproportionately large numbers, mm -hmm. numbers that they never had before. before. So that explained the difference. Now, but in terms of electoral college, in terms of individual states, 40-something states, let's call it 42, 43 states, went exactly the way we thought they were going to yeah. go. And the polls were right. Yeah, they were right. Then there were a handful of polls, states, let's call it four or five, that the polls said that it was too close to call, call. You look at it, too close to call. You know, there were two, three, four that we had as toss-ups going into election day. And guess what? They were all close. Yeah. But then there were three states that the polls showed Clinton ahead. And not by enormous numbers, but by, you know, real numbers that went for Trump. You know, it was Michigan, mm. a state that had voted Democratic six times in a row, and that, and that Donald Trump won by two-tenths of a percentage point. There was Pennsylvania, another state that had gone Democratic six times in a row, uh, and who went for uh, Trump by seven-tenths of a per percentage right. point. And, and I should add that the, the last Democrats to lose Michigan and Pennsylvania uh, was um, Michael Dukakis in 1988. Then you had Wisconsin. It had gone Democratic seven times in a row. Wow. Trump, the last, last Democrat to lose was Walter Mondale <laughs> in 1984. Trump wins there by seven-tenths of a point. Hillary Clinton barely spent money, barely campaigned Didn't go there. in Michigan or Wisconsin. Those just, I'm talking about those two. And in fact, never stepped foot in the state of Wisconsin between Labor Day 
and election day. Just assumed. They thought they had both of them in the back. So was there a big Democratic Party Clinton campaign effort to get African Americans out of Detroit to turn out? Or young people, college students right. out of Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, Lansing, Michigan State, or you know, other campuses? In Milwaukee, African American vote out of Milwaukee, the students at say University of Wisconsin and Madison? Mm. No. Nah, 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 yeah. nah. And crap. Because you know, you gotta play to win, you know? And so that was a political that was a miscalculation. Pennsylvania, Clinton campaign spent a ton of money in Pennsylvania. They did a lot in the city of Philadelphia and the suburbs in the east, Pittsburgh and the suburbs in the west. But in the middle, they caught the T because it's across the middle. Uh, it's the middle, and then across the very top of the state, they felt like they didn't need to do anything. They didn't. Yeah, that they could give that to Trump, and you know, because not that many people yeah, vote there. there. Well, as it turned out, they voted in well, numbers that were higher than they ever had before. So in Pennsylvania, it was where they spent their money, and and so anyway, and so look, this was a weird, weird, weird election. And to be perfectly honest, I think the election turned. I think half of it was about Donald Trump tapping into some visceral feelings and fears yes. and aspirations and all of this. Half of it. But half of it was there were a lot of voters, a lot of people that were never, ever, ever going to vote for Donald Trump. Mm. That was just not going to happen. But a lot of them weren't happy, weren't excited about voting for Hillary Clinton. Right. But they were going to do it. They were going to hold their noses and vote for him because they didn't want Trump to win. But in the last month before the election, and particularly after the Billy Bush Access Hollywood tape about you know Trump saying you know he liked to grab women, but. Yeah. Um, at that point, the election looked over. I mean, the Republican Speaker of the House at the time, Paul Ryan, suggests yeah, that the Republican nominee might want to think about stepping aside. Yeah. It was over. Yeah. At that point, there was no way it looked like Donald Trump could win. There was no way Hillary Clinton could lose. The election was over. So anybody that didn't really want to vote for Hillary Clinton didn't have to. Yeah. Nobody had to do anything they didn't want to do. Yeah. And so... You know, if you were going to vote and you were not enthusiastic, but you were going to vote for Hillary Clinton or you're going to vote against Donald Trump on your way home from work, <laughs> and if you decided to pick up a gallon of milk or pick up your dry cleaning instead of going to the polls and voting, you may, or go straight home early and play catch with your kids or help your kids with homework or yeah. go out for a drink or whatever, a cup of coffee. And there was such ambivalence mm -hmm. on one side, while Trump did have an intensity on his side, that I think it was a good piece of this was overconfidence mm -hmm. and ambivalence about Clinton. Yeah. So it was the damnedest election we ever saw. Um, there are some people who said before the election they thought Trump would win. Um, I'll, I'll just say a lot more of them are talking about it now than we're talking about it yeah. before the election. <laughs> and the thing is, I've never seen a presidential election where there weren't people, you know, there were people that thought that, that uh, George McGovern was going to win and he won one state. <laughs> you know, the Walter Mondale and he won two states. I mean, yeah. you know, every, like, Barry Goldwater was going to win and, yeah. and London Johnson buried him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 I mean, there's, you know, but, but 
and if you drove through small town rural America, would you see a lot of Trump signs before that election? Absolutely, you would. But that before had never been a particularly useful yardstick mm. given that small town rural America increasingly is a smaller and smaller proportion yeah. of the electorate. So, um, but it, it was a wild one. Yeah. And, um, you know. You're expecting uh, the biggest voter turnout this next 2020? I, the, the record high turnout in any presidential election, presidential or midterm, was in 1940 and again in 1960, where 65% of the people that were eligible to vote mm. voted. So American citizens, you know, you know, we're not felons in states that right. prohibited felons, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's not of adults or people or adults if it is eligible. It's, it's, uh, it, would, it, it was 65%. Um, basically 60% voted in 2016, mm -hmm. and that was basically the same number as the three presidential elections before. So it was an average turnout. Now that doesn't mean all groups were average because some, turnout, some groups turned out in bigger numbers in 16 than others or less numbers than 16 and whatever. Now, um, uh, the midterm that was just before that 2016 mm -hmm. election, 2014, it had uh, the lowest voter turnout of any midterm election since 1942. Wow. Lowest since 1942. The um, 2018 midterm election was the highest voter turnout since 1914. Wow. Now, you don't go from yeah. the lowest turnout in 70-something years to the highest turnout in, what is that, 104 years, accidentally, and where people are motivated. Yes. And there's the people that love President Trump, and there are the people that hate him. Yeah. And 75% of Americans, of adults, of voters, either strongly approve him or strongly disapprove him. Um, I think you're going to see an enormous turnout. It may be a record. If, it does, if it's not a record, I think it'll be pretty close. close. <laughs> but it will be both sides turning out in really, really, really big numbers. And as I said at the very beginning, this is going to be a close election. Mm -hmm. um, and close races can go either way. And I don't know who's going to win. Right. And I don't know anybody who knows who's going to win. I know people who think they know who's going to win. But so um, it is going to be a good one. It's going to be exciting. And, 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 and the, the very, very last thing is that um, um, I used to hear people say, well, it doesn't matter who wins. Well, whether you love Donald Trump or whether you hate him, I don't hear many Americans say it doesn't matter who wins anymore. Mm. You know? So it's, um, it's interesting. But um, anyway, it's a... It's a hell of a time to be watching American politics. Well, whether it is Bloomberg or Biden. Uh, or yeah, whoever, Bernie whoever or Elizabeth be, or whoever the hell. Yeah. yeah, it'll be an interesting. Yeah. Uh, and my guess is this podcast has gone about three times longer than you wanted it to. It's fine. This is great. Uh, the, the more the better. And uh, yeah. And again, uh, thank you for your time. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I'm just you know, looking important. forward to another excuse to come back to Hong Kong <laughs> well, and does and all of Asia. Excuse me? After the election. You know, for an American, um, you know, Asia is such a different, mm. exotic place. And I envy, uh, particularly the, the, the expats who, 
you know, could be sitting in Nebraska or my hometown in Shreveport, Louisiana or whatever, or whether they're Brits or Australia. I mean, it, 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 it's got to be exciting, energizing, interesting. Uh, you know, it's yes. like something, it's like, wow, I, I, you know. No, the world's watching and the world's watching every day. It's, 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 it's amazing. It, it, it is. And, um, you know, I love the city and I wish the best for it. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you.